Homelessness was already one of Seattle's biggest issues in 2016. The mayor had declared a state of emergency just a few months earlier. But then this happened. We begin King 5 News at 9 with some breaking news. Seattle police are investigating a deadly shooting at a homeless camp in South Seattle. Killers on the run. The scene is a, is a, a tent and uh, multiple shots Two were fired. people are dead. Three have been wounded after a shooting at a homeless encampment. Suddenly, everybody was talking about this homeless camp called The Jungle. Murder, sexual assaults, and rampant drug deals. The Jungle is loaded with trash and drug paraphernalia. It's been a hot spot for crime for decades. But up to 400 people lived there at the time. We wondered, what is this place really? And what can it teach us? In the next hour, we're going to talk about Seattle's largest and most persistent homeless camp. I'm Joshua McNichols. And I'm Kate Walters. We're reporters here at KUOW. You're listening to Out of the Jungle. Kate, can you hear that? Yeah, ka-chung, ka-chung. Yes, that is the sound of the jungle. It's the backdrop to everything that happens there. It's just cars slapping against the I-5 freeway, hitting the expansion joints. But it's this, this sound that's above the space where people camp, this just complete desert covered in dirt. Yeah, and then when it rains, all that dirt turns to mud, of course. Basically a slip and slide. Yeah. After the shooting in the jungle, Seattle Mayor Ed Murray's reaction was just instantaneous and strong. The area behind us on state right-of-way, commonly called the jungle, has been unmanageable and out of control for almost two decades. The mayor later told us he basically wanted to shut the place down. But here's the thing. The jungle's actually been there in one form or another since the 1930s, and nobody has managed to shut it down. So we wanted to find out for ourselves, what is this place? And what better way to find out than to talk to the people who actually live there? All right, Saturday, 10.35 p.m. Robert and Carmen are just getting off the bus. I'm coming. Um, we usually try, we're, you know, we're getting off the bus, going to the jungle. We usually try to be home before it's dark because it's not the best walk. Robert and Carmen Patterson live in the jungle. I met them when I went into the jungle with this stack of letters. We wanted people to send us text messages, photographs, or voice recordings of themselves in the jungle. Basically, we wanted to hear their stories. Yeah, and we got text messages about addiction and despair, but we also saw these moments of joy. We, we got a photo of a rainbow over Georgetown, viewed through the columns supporting the freeway. Robert Patterson recorded himself on his phone. Mostly he talks about Carmen, his wife. Being homeless ain't easy. We ain't lazy, not at all. We shower several times a week. We put on clean clothes every day because we do laundry. You know, we're on the methadone clinic, but uh, you know, we, we've been clean six years almost now. You know, I don't make the bad decisions I used to. And one of the main reasons for that is because of Carmen, my wife. If it wasn't for her, I couldn't imagine where I'd be right now. You wouldn't have liked me if you'd known me when I was on dope. I remember this one time I was in my sister's bedroom. I knew she had some pills that would make me feel better. 
And what did I do? I took the part of the bills and I walked away and I didn't give up. And I haven't talked to my sister in seven years now. Comrade had one of the biggest rows I've ever had. And she finally just got me around to her way of thinking. You're not the first person that's come and wanted to hear our story. Lots of people have. But you know what's happened? Nothing. We're still here. Still live under a freeway. Well, they sent out more outreach workers. And when they came out, they were, they, it was ridiculous. They asked you if you would like to go to a shelter. No, is the answer. If I wanted to go to a shelter, I would be at a shelter. You know what I want to say to that? I want to say, how about you go spend one night at a shelter? I don't know what people think they are, but they're not cool. They don't let you in until about 8 o'clock at night, but you have to get in line hours earlier. And then they wake you up at like 4, 45, 5 in the morning. And they're not nice about it. They're like, bang, bang, bang. Time to get up. Go out and do stuff. I mean, it's 5 in the morning. What the hell are you supposed to do at 5 in the morning? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I'm not. I made some mistakes. I've hurt people. But man, it's still got to live. Still got to survive. I think our bus is coming, and I hope you can hear most of this, because I know the traffic's loud. Man, I hope you can hear it. I, I still remember when we first heard that piece, like, so many months ago. It just still hits me in the gut when I hear it. It just makes it, the whole situation so human. You're listening to Out of the Jungle. It's a special about the people who live underneath the cars streaming down I-5 in South Seattle. I'm Joshua McNichols, a reporter here at KUOW. And I'm Kate Walters. I'm also a reporter. Right now we're meeting some of the people who live in the jungle and learning why they're there. And the thing is, their stories are all different. My name is Majok Lewis, and I'm from South Sudan. My parent has sent me here. How old were you when you came? 13. So you haven't seen your parents since then? Since then, I haven't seen my parents. So how did you get here? I, I didn't have nobody to help me. And uh, I was just walking down the street downtown and everywhere and all that. Thing. And uh, I find one, one South Sudanese person guy and he just told me, oh, you can come and live with me in the jungle since you have nowhere to go, it's cold and all that thing. So, so he, he brought me here to the jungle. I have lost all my paper, social security card, all that stuff. I don't have it. So I have no way to find a job or anything. So I bet I'm stuck down here. Lewis has watched his friends in the jungle turn bitter. They include former child soldiers from South Sudan, 
but also people from many other nations, from Ireland to China. I can tell you one thing. They just hate the whole Seattle. They hate the whole Seattle. The situation that, in, that they are in it, that nobody is helping them, even though you talk, it won't help that much. What's your hope for the future? My hope for the future is very big. I want to be able to, to support myself. And I love my mom so much, and I love my family so much. I want them to see me again. I want to, I want to get educated, and I will come back down here to the jungle and help my brother that need help. They got, they, got, they got a voice, but they don't speak it. But I want to come back here and take my friend one by one and educate them, get them everything that they need to get a job too and have a place to live, have a home. And instead of living here. But right now, I have no power. I have nothing to do but just wait and see. We heard over and over again from people that they found community in the jungle. I think for most of us, by the time we've gotten here to the point where we're living under a bridge and tents, we feel, we feel very much alone and kind of a displacement and a separation from society. And when you're on the streets, there's absolutely no normalcy at all. There's no routine. And so when I found this place, it, it had been so long since I felt safe and welcomed. That's Kara Bernstein. She lives in the part of the jungle known as the Caves. Danny lives there too. Danny doesn't use his last name because he doesn't want the shipyard where he works to know he lives here. He says the community here is also about protecting people from danger. We have, we have sentries up here. We have people standing out here that are looking, and they call one up from the bottom, one from the west. And unfortunately, that didn't work for us that night because the people came up looking like ordinary citizens, and then they just pulled out a gun and started shooting. There was nothing we could do. You know what he's talking about, right? Yeah, he's talking about the murder that happened in the jungle, right? The, the one that basically set this whole conversation off. Yeah, I spoke to Danny right after the shooting. I went back eight months later, too, to see if the shooting was still top of mind for people there. It was. They killed my friend, dead point in the brain, 33-year-old boy. They shot my girlfriend three times. That's Cuckoo. She doesn't use her last name because she sells drugs and she's the witness to a murder. She says when the bullets started flying that night, she came out with her gun. Then she saw they were kids and she didn't shoot. Even when they shot her husband, a man she calls Dog, even when they shot him again. All I can think is my man. And if he was to die, I wanted to see my eyes on his way out. I had to see him. I came running out. They shot me in my back. The bullet entered right next to her spine. Somehow, she managed to make her way to her husband. He held me every minute, waiting until the ambulance showed up, saying, bird, bird, don't, they call me bird, it's cuckoo. Bird, 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 don't go, don't go. That grown-ass old man, cry. You would think that was enough reason for someone to stay out of this place. But after cuckoo got better, she came back to the jungle. Wow. Dog came too. I mean, this was their home. These were their people. I got to tell you, Kate, I feel really conflicted about Cuckoo. She's selling what she calls black market pharmaceuticals. So drugs, right? Yeah. There's a lot of heroin right in that area. It's not like she's proud of what she's done. I mean, she's just run out of options in life. 
I mean, a lot of the people in there have run out of options, right? And some of that's because of the bad choices that they made, and some of it's because the system failed them. Yeah. And after the break, we'll look into how a failed system helped create the jungle, starting with the shelter system. It's supposed to be the first step on a road that reconnects you back to society, but a lot of people don't see it that way. That place there is the most ridiculous, outlandish place I've ever been to. That's next on Out of the Jungle. Listening to Out of the Jungle, a special about the three mile scrap of land under I 5 that we've heard called jokingly Seattle's biggest homeless shelter. I'm Kate Walters, here with my colleague Joshua McNichols. Before the break, we met some of the people in the jungle. They're there for all kinds of reasons. Many of those reasons are personal, but there are also systemic reasons. We'll begin with the shelter system it's failing people. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand. I'll take you somewhere and show you to this place called Operation Night Watch. It's a big room where homeless men and women, but mostly men, get dinner. And then they sit around, kind of like in an airport. But they're not waiting for planes. They're waiting for beds. You know, so I, I know what it is to be homeless. I've been homeless quite a few times. That's Kevin Burke. He sits in the corner of the room at a desk. He is the reason that people showed up here tonight. I remember you, you gave him a title of some kind, right? Yeah, he's the finder of beds. I love that. Keep in mind, this isn't actually a shelter, though. It's like Match.com for homeless people in beds. The doors open at 9 each night, and then Kevin gets to work. So, I'm just trying to see if you got any spots. All right, well, if you get anything, let me know. There's no fancy computer system for him to consult that tells him which shelters have beds. He works with a pen and paper and an old telephone. The people here keep walking up to the desk and asking Burke if he's found anything for them. See, each time you guys stop me from doing, that's why I'm kind of slow, because everybody keeps asking questions. I'm trying to get someplace to go to sleep, and they keep putting me off, talking about, sit down, wait, sit down, wait, wait for what? Have a seat, and I'll see what I can do. Okay, thank you. Operation 9, watch, come speak. My name's Frank Brown. Frank Brown? Yes. I had a stroke, and uh, I can't. I can't work. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a retired truck driver. I know, Mr. Frank. I'm trying to get everybody in here, so be be patient, okay? Sending all these other people to all these other different places, why don't you have a place for me? i got to step in and say Operation Night Watch is not the problem. They're good folks who are trying to help. It's just the system they're helping people navigate. That's what leads to frustration. Well, the manager does sound like he's kind of annoyed. I mean, how does this work? Most shelters expect to be full. I know. Can I go to DSC? DSC doesn't have any spots, Gary. But on any given night, a few people don't show up, and the shelters discover they have unclaimed mattresses. That's why these homeless men and women are here, waiting. They don't want to sleep outside. Right now, the only thing I have is Union Gospel Mission um, or either 10 City 6. You know, my a chair? Huh? A chair. Very much, yeah. yeah, sleep in a chair. Yeah. Pearl Warren, I'll see what I have. I have a few yeah, people that have not showed up, so just have a seat for me. I've been here since 9.15. What time is it now? 
It's um, 11.05. Yeah, this is camera's operation hours. It doesn't make sense. That's good. Well, I've got a few people that would like to come and visit you. Mark Brown. Frank Brown. Frank Brown. Frank Brown finally gets his spot. I don't know which shelter, but at least he ended up in a bed. And I'm truly grateful for what these people do here for me. Ladies and gentlemen, the ride is here. Time to go ahead and kick gravel to travel. It really sounds like this guy at Operation Nightwatch had to fight for every single bed. Yeah, there's this interesting tension here. There are some shelters that have got room. Even if they don't have beds, they can turn the lunchroom, for example, into a sleeping area and just throw down some cots. But most shelters target a certain population, women, men, or people trying to detox, and not everyone fits the bed that is open for them. And each shelter has its own entry process. With the lines and the waiting. Yeah. Do you do this every night? Every, every night, until I can give me a, find me a one-bedroom apartment. Because I have a voucher to get one, and I got the money to get one. I just haven't been able to find an empty one-bedroom apartment Nowhere in Seattle. A lot of people eventually get out of the shelter system and into permanent housing, but a smaller group don't. And no matter what they do, they just can't seem to escape. They either resign themselves to organizing their lives around shelters and their schedules, or they give up on shelters entirely and set up camp somewhere. Somewhere like the jungle. Listening to Out of the Jungle, a special about the biggest homeless camp in Seattle, a three mile stretch of people who would rather be under a bridge than in a shelter for a variety of reasons. It's not always because it's hard to get into a shelter, though. A lot of people don't want to get in because, think about it, there's nowhere to put your stuff in most shelters. Yeah, and when you're homeless, your, your backpack or your suitcase might contain everything that you own in this world. It's easier to keep your stuff in the jungle than it is to keep it with you in a shelter. The sound you're hearing now, it's the day room at the Downtown Emergency Service Center, a shelter. So this is just an area where people can get inside and rest. Liz Worley Prieto manages the place, which everyone just calls DESC. In the day room, people sit on chairs, their personal belongings gathered around their feet. Where where do people put their stuff? Um, So we ask that all clients keep their belongings with them at all times, and that's really challenging for folks because a lot of people don't have, you know, nice backpacks or things like that, so they may have all their belongings with them in a trash bag. That's one of the reasons Cassidy Sweezy lives in the jungle. She's one of the first people that I met in there. She has this tidy encampment behind a section of chain-link fence under the freeway. Yeah, it did look pretty nice. Yeah, it's kind of a, a home where she can cook and relax in privacy. To stay in a shelter, you have to carry all your belongings and and leave at a certain time and come back to wait in line to get in at another certain time and there's nowhere to cook and I've got a boyfriend, I've got two dogs, which also doesn't fly. (laughs) I kind of gave up on the system a little while ago because you jump through all these hoops and they ask so much of you for me to like move to a shelter and go that route. It would really like degrade my way of living right now. It would be like taking a step back. I played that recording of Cassidy Sweezy in the Jungle for Rick Reynolds. He's a homeless advocate with Operation Nightwatch. He said, when you go into a shelter, you just give up a lot, like some personal freedoms. You know, a shelter's going to regiment you, and human beings defy regimentation. Any parent of a teenager will understand this. 
Back outside the DESC, I met this guy, Teddy Murata Jr. He was selling cigarettes on the sidewalk. He pointed to the shelter. That place there is the most ridiculous, outlandish place I've ever been to. Murata got kicked out. He has mental health issues for sure. He uses crack. He ended up in a knife fight. It's pretty intense. Yeah. It shows what a complicated population shelters work with. And the other kind of baggage shelter clients sometimes carry with them. I mean, I can see why some people might choose the jungle over a shelter. Having nowhere to put your stuff, being separated from your partner and your pets, having to stand in line to wait for a shelter to open. I mean, it all just sounds exhausting. So I guess the question is, do the shelters even work? They do work for many people, according to Solo Plumacher. She's with Seattle's Human Services Department, and she's in charge of contracts with shelters. She says we need more of them, but at the same time, she recognizes shelters only address a symptom rather than the root of the problem. It has definitely become very clear in the last five years that that is not the kind of um, system that is having the greatest impact. You're listening to Out of the Jungle, a special about the largest and longest standing homeless camp in Seattle. We're talking about the reasons this place exists and the failure of the shelter system to address the root of the problem. That's one of the reasons the jungle exists. Yeah, I remember being really shocked when you showed me a graph earlier this year. It basically shows how much the city spends once people become homeless, right, to try and help them out. And it was just this huge skyscraper of a bar on a chart. And right next to it, there was this tiny little bar. Yeah, and that tiny bar represents the money we're spending on preventing people from becoming homeless. And it just pales in comparison. That's a problem, because if you keep throwing money at the symptom without ever stemming the flow... Here's a metaphor from city staffer Josh Hall. He compares the shelter system to a glass held under a water tap. You can make the glass taller so the water doesn't overflow. Or you can figure out a way to turn off the tap, slow the tap, and then you don't need to keep building up that glass to hold and contain the water. There's a lot of criticism of the shelter system going around now. The city is calling for reform. But Rick Reynolds argues we shouldn't judge shelters too harshly for the things they can't do. Shelter itself has value. You're reducing human suffering, right? You're keeping people engaged with other human beings in a semi-responsible way. You know, they're able to get along with others and they can function in the shelter system. And that's a good thing. Reynolds says what we really need is just more affordable housing for the poorest people in our community. This hour, we're talking about the jungle and the forces that helped create it, like a shelter system that doesn't work. Right. But there are other reasons people end up in the jungle. Addiction and a lack of treatment play a big role in that. Some people go to the jungle to use. One guy I met in the jungle ended up there because he was basically trying to recover. His name is Kevin Boggs. He's this really tall guy, pretty big actually, and he walks with this kind of loping movement. I think he hurt one of his knees at some point. I used to have a very, very small tent that I got from Fred Meyer, then I graduated to a gift tent. When I met him, he was living in this bright orange tent up in the part of the jungle where the murder happened, the caves. He was there that night, and he ended up as part of that camp for a couple of reasons. But a big part of it was proximity. Right down the hill, there's this big grey building that houses a treatment clinic. 
So what are we talking about here? Counseling? Therapy? Methadone. It's a medication people who are addicted to opiates like heroin can take. Here's how Kevin describes it. Methadone basically gives any of us that stay on it the stability to actually live normal lives, take care of the things that we need to take care of, go and get jobs without rushing out to obtain heroin every day. So basically methadone stops you from going into withdrawal. And, you know, like Kevin said, it lets you focus on things like getting a job and reconnecting with the family and basically facing the music for the decisions you made as an addict. It, it sounds like it's pretty effective, but what's, what's the catch? So it's really, really highly regulated. There aren't many clinics, only three in Seattle, and you have to physically show up at the clinic every single day to get your medication. And I expect one of those clinics is right near the jungle? That is correct. And that's why Kevin came there. That's why he moved. He wanted to be near the clinic on Airport Way South, which is just a stone's throw from the jungle. I generally get up, throw on my shoes, and stumble on down here. It's uh, just straight down the hill from my tent, and then a left turn, and about... Well, I don't even, know, don't even know how to measure it, a quarter mile down the road. And how often do you have to do that? Uh, Monday through Saturday, and Sunday I get a take-home dose. So, every single day. They're open at 5.30 a.m. and they close at... Well, now they've shortened their hours and they close at 1 p.m. instead of the former 3 p.m. So when I work, and I do work, I have to get up and dose here very early. Oops. And then rush to work. And then uh, now that the hours are shortened, uh, there's never time to get off work and then come here after. So Kevin was really excited when he first got into the program on Airport Way South. But he was living in Lake City at the time, and it took him 45 minutes on the bus just to get to the clinic every day. So the jungle was this kind of perfect solution for him. It means that the clinic visits don't take up his entire day. He goes early in the morning, and he actually let me follow him into the clinic one day. There's two dosing windows. We just wait patiently. Sometimes there's a a line that can take... So Kevin gets his dose from a nurse. Kevin Boggs. My dose is 40. Dose is 40? Yes, sir. Uh, it's in a small white plastic cup. It's this sort of pink liquid that kind of looks like mouthwash. The taste is very, very medicinal. If you don't have the water to rinse it down afterwards, you're going to get a really bad, strong aftertaste that lasts for a long time. On top of taking the medication every day, he has to submit to random drug tests at least once a month. Um, he's got to go to counselling. He's got to stay clean. It's just, it's all part of the deal. That sounds like a lot, especially for someone who's homeless and trying to get back on their feet. Yeah, it's particularly hard for people like Kevin. But, you know, the methadone clinic gets that. I talked to the woman who runs the place on Airport Way South. Her name's Molly Carney. When you don't know where you're going to be that night or if you have to leave your tent with all of your possessions in it and risk having it taken or stolen or swept away, that becomes a huge stressor, which absolutely impacts people's ability to focus on the treatment. You're listening to Out of the Jungle, and we're talking about the reasons this homeless camp exists, the forces that helped create it. Earlier this hour, we looked at the failures of Seattle's shelter system. Now we're talking about the role of addiction and our treatment services. So this guy you met, Kevin Boggs, he moved to the jungle partly because he needed to be close to the methadone clinic. So can we blame the methadone clinic for the jungle? No. And I mean, the people that I talked to there drew a really clear line at that. The jungle existed before their clinic was even there. So why don't we just open more? Well, it's complicated. Like I said, methadone's really highly regulated, so that makes it hard from the get-go. Also, some communities don't want these clinics in their neighbourhoods. I mean, there's definitely a stigma attached to this kind of treatment. Yeah. 
The other thing is, with addiction as prevalent as it is, you'd basically have to have one of these clinics on every corner to make it convenient. That's actually kind of what Kayla Bantergreen wants to do. He's this opioid addiction expert from the University of Washington. He's also on the King County Heroin Task Force. He says addicts have basically got two paths at the moment, right? They can stay in addiction or they can get treatment. And to make a difference, Bantergreen says, we've got to make these medications, these treatments like methadone, easier to get than heroin. It needs to be a normal thing that all primary care doctors do. Most primary care doctors prescribe opiates for pain. Uh, most of them take care of uh, treating depression with antidepressants. So it is addiction that we think is a fundamentally different medical condition. It isn't fundamentally different. Kevin Boggs, the guy I met in the jungle, he says easier access to this kind of treatment would help a lot of people like him. Because being on methadone, it really has sort of changed his life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like my shield that I need. I'm not afraid to be without it, but I know what would happen. You can see how lack of access to treatment could help create places like the jungle. If people are addicted, they want a place to shoot up. And if they want treatment, they need to live close by because they can only get that treatment in a couple of places. Right. And this isn't just a problem for addicts. You see the same lack of treatment for people with mental health issues, too. Oh, for sure. And a lot of the people that we met in the jungle, I mean, they do have mental health issues. And think about this. Washington is 47th in the nation for funding mental health treatment. So it definitely plays a part. Okay, we've been talking about the ways the system has failed the people in the jungle. All these systemic reasons why if we take away the jungle, we can probably predict it will come back. Like it has in the past. Inconvenience of shelters and housing, lack of addiction treatment, lack of mental health care. And we know this sounds really gloomy. It sounds like a lost cause. So what can we do? That's what we're going to talk about in the third act of this hour. The solutions coming up after the break. Listening to Out of the Jungle, a special about the homeless camp that's outlived every mayor who's tried to shut it down. I'm Kate Walters, and I'm here with Joshua McNichols. In the space of just a few months, Seattle's approach to the jungle went from this Shut it down. It needs to be secured. It is not a safe place for the homeless people who are there. To this I don't have the answers. We're actually making this up as we go along. We thought it was so simple it turned out to be so much more complicated. We realised the jungle was this symptom of a whole lot of wider problems. We realised we had to fix the system to fix the jungle. It starts with the shelters. They don't work for everybody. Even shelter managers know this. Here's Liz Worley-Prieto of the Downtown Emergency Service Centre, a shelter. 
I wish that we were able to provide people with more storage options. I wish we were able to provide people with more autonomy and the ability to, you know, sleep next to their partner if that's what they, they choose. Um, but the reality of um, the space, the reality of staffing, um, and the reality of, of running a shelter program doesn't allow for a lot of those things. And it's hard to imagine a shelter that would be able to eliminate all of those restrictions. That's, I mean, that's called housing. <laughs> housing. Everybody's talking about it. Once you get them people in a place, I'm telling you, you don't know what a change. Everything, they're a human being again. It's going to change lives, man. Maybe even take some of them off them drugs. You, you never know. It worked for me. It could work for anybody. That's Sharon Jones, who spent time sleeping outside to be closer to work. She's giving voice to an idea called Housing First. It's this nationally recognized strategy. We're talking about housing that people don't have to be sober to get into. Literally housing people before you deal with all the other issues in their lives. Give them housing and support like counseling and treatment if they need it. And a lot of the other problems just melt away. It's just a lot easier to deal with things like mental health and addiction in a stable environment. Like housing, putting people in housing first. And we did that in Seattle. Yeah, we pioneered it, but we haven't kept up with demand. Let me show you how it's supposed to work. Take this guy, Rob Gilroy. He had a wife, kids, and this good job as a garbage collector. But then a divorce kicked his butt. I was grieving, and so I, I, unfortunately, I turned to drugs. The, the bottom line when it comes to drugs is, you, you know, you're going to end up with nothing. He ended up on the street. Days added up to weeks, which added up to years. Gilroy became what you call chronically homeless. Getting housing seems so out of reach because you'll hear these stories of people saying, oh my gosh, I've been on the waiting list for eight years, you know, and I still haven't got my housing. And so it seems so far away. And I've heard that story from people in the jungle, too. Housing just really seems out of reach. Gilroy says the shelters he stayed in never tried to convince him that housing was even an option. But then he came to the Blaine Center. That's this homeless shelter near the Space Needle. The difference is this place, it tries really hard to get people into permanent housing. They told Gilroy he didn't have to sober up first. The problem is there aren't enough places like that to put people in. Right. And I talked to Juanita Unger about that, too. She's a social worker at the Blaine Center. How often do you fail to find a place to put somebody? Um, often. So it was a really big deal when Unger finally managed to get Gilroy an apartment in a building like that. Still, when Unger told him about it, he balked. Really? Why? He was pretty apprehensive. So Unger told him, you need to take this apartment. There are probably a hundred people waiting for your shelter bed. People who just need a little bit of help to get back on their feet. Unger told Gilroy, you may not stay in our shelter forever. That's a hard conversation to have with people. And he did not like it either. He was pretty angry at me. You know, there's, there's kind of a risk. You know, could this push him over the edge where he doesn't accept the housing and he goes into a loop of whatever, you know, depression or or addiction or whatever? Gilroy took the tiny studio apartment. Six months later, he's still getting used to it. 
Because housing first apartments, they're a little different from just regular apartments, right? Right. Like, for example, down in the front, there's a security desk and not just anybody can drop in and visit him. And then there's the constant reminders of addiction. When the guy down the hall is coming down from a high, he yells and yells. Wow, that is really intense. But Gilroy is trying to make it feel like home. He's really proud of this beautiful white couch where he sleeps. I just actually I just got this furniture for 50 bucks from some guy. It was a really good deal. I used to have a bed, but I'd rather have it set like a living room. It's more comfortable for me. He's using a lot less meth than he used to. He says one day he hopes to kick it all together, get a job driving a garbage truck or a metro bus or something. He's got this caseworker from the Downtown Emergency Service Center to help him out. And he started on a new leg of his journey now. That's what all well, this with this building and DSC has kind of helped me do is, is get my independence back, get my self-worth back. You said he's using less meth than he used to, but he is still using, and he's in a place where his neighbor screams when he's coming down from a high, so how can he ever really get out? There is a light at the end of the tunnel for this model of housing. There is a path out for some people, and Seattle is looking to emphasize that even more. They want this kind of housing to be somewhere you just pass through on your way somewhere else. You're listening to Out of the Jungle, a special about the long and winding path out of homelessness and into housing. I'm going to take you somewhere now, to a restaurant in Federal Way. Sandra Anderson is enjoying a celebratory meal with a couple of social workers. She got to choose the restaurant. She chose Denny's. She's about to dig into her favorite meal. Oh, biscuits and gravy are my favorites. Every time I go to a restaurant, I like biscuits and gravy. (laughs) Well, who doesn't like biscuits and gravy? But this is a cause for celebration because Anderson is graduating from a housing program, kind of like the one Rob Gilroy just got into. Her apartment will be signed over to her name. She'll be independent. Years ago, Anderson was living in a boat in her brother's backyard. She was hooked on heroin, struggling with mental illness, and making money as a prostitute. That's how she ended up at Western State Hospital. From there, a nonprofit got her into low barrier housing. That helped her transition to a life where she can take care of herself. You can come back too and do a talk to people that are interested in graduating but afraid. Uh huh. You know? She's clean and sober now. She's been applying for jobs recently. No bites yet, but she's hopeful, and her peers are starting to notice her success. Makes me feel really good. I've never, you know, been a role model before in my life, (laughs) you know, but I, you know, I've changed a lot. She sounds so happy about those changes. I mean, this is how Housing First works. It's an incredibly successful intervention as far as the stability it provides. That's Laura Mashu from New York. She runs the Supportive Housing Network of New York. That's a group that includes 200 nonprofit housing and service providers. And this model, this Housing First model, it's not just in Seattle. Right. Seattle helped develop this idea, but other states like New York have taken the idea further. Mishu says it's worth it because it saves money. You know, someone who's homeless is cycling in and out of shelter, um, emergency rooms, uh, prisons, state psych beds, and those systems are incredibly expensive. 
And that's exactly what we heard from Barbara Poppy. She's this national expert on homelessness. Seattle paid her like $100,000 to tell us basically the same thing. Well, to be fair, she did tell us a little more than that. Yeah, like she told us, because it takes a lot of time to get people into housing, you need to track their journey carefully as they bounce from one shelter to another. She also told us that the end goal of everything we do, of our shelters, of our outreach, should be to get people into stable housing. Getting people into stable housing often begins at the shelter. But as you've heard, a lot of people don't like them. So the city wants to open up a new kind of shelter. They call it the Navigation Center. It's based on this model from San Francisco. It's also different because it eliminates a lot of the barriers people say kept them away from more traditional shelters. The new place is 24 hours. You can bring your stuff. You can bring your partner or your pet. You don't have to be sober. And all that stuff's really important, but it also comes at a cost. It's expensive compared to other shelters. If we want to do a 24-hour shelter, you have to pay for 24 hours. That's Julie Ledbetter. She runs the Navigation Centre in San Francisco. And it's not just staffing the place that adds cost. Like, for example, letting people bring their stuff in. That takes a surprising amount of work. We go out with public works and pick up people With all of their stuff, we might some days when we pull an encampment in, we might have a whole packer truck road full of belongings. And then we store all that stuff in these big containers outside. Did you hear that? No. What? She said something really important there. When they bring in an encampment. So part of this model is that they pull in a whole encampment at one time. And that sense of community, that thing that you and I heard from people in the jungle is so important and keeps them rooted in this place... That comes with them when they move into the navigation centre. And all of a sudden they're in this space where there are counsellors, ready to connect them to services and housing. What you're doing is you're bringing people in in the way they want to exist. You're bringing their support network in. So as long as you are creating a space in which you're really helping people solve their problems, they are happy to be here, engaged and ready to do the work. The City of Seattle wants to have their navigation centre up and running by the end of 2016. You know, the shooting in the jungle was in January of 2016, and we've had months of debate about it and outreach there. On October 11th, the city and the state finally reached the limit of their tolerance. They moved in and swept everybody out. The state wants to do some work on the underside of the freeway. They say they can't do it with all those people camping there. This whole area through here is going to turn into one big construction zone over the next four weeks. The Union Gospel Mission helped campers like Daryl Sutton carry their stuff out. They're coming over here with their vans, helping us move the stuff. Where are they moving you right now? Um, Wherever I need to go. Probably Spokane Street right now. He's moving under another bridge in another part of town. But while people were moving out, police shot a man here. They said he had a knife and was fighting somebody. His friends Willie Koech and Tina Harding said he didn't deserve to die like that. But they shot him for nothing, man. They shot him for nothing. Mikey was one of us. And we love him. But we have learned some lessons. The jungle is a crucible of many of our hardest problems. Everything from rising rents to our failing mental health system to the heroin epidemic, these problems concentrate in the jungle. But we all benefit from fixing those things. 
thank you for spending the last hour with us. I'm Joshua McNichols. And I'm Kate Walters. This has been Out of the Jungle on KUOW. The clouds were